0: Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Closing off America to others was a cornerstone of the Trump presidency. He separated families, put children in cages, kept Muslims out, and slashed the number of refugees allowed to enter the country. Now, President Biden is reversing these policies at a dizzying pace. Biden has signed five executive orders and issued another four statements and proclamations in less than two weeks that ups the number of refugees allowed into the country annually, nearly tenfold to 125,000, tries to reunify families that were separated at the Mexican border, stops construction of the border wall, and looks at access to the legal system for immigrants, among other policies. Moreover, the Washington Post reported that Immigration and Customs Enforcement will issue new guidelines this week that could sharply stem arrests and deportations. Immigration policies have always been complicated and political. No one knows that better than Cecilia Munoz, a former immigration activist, a leader at the nation's largest Hispanic policy organization, and the first Latina to be named as senior director of the White House Domestic Policy Council under President Obama. Immigration policies were part of her portfolio, and she came under fire from immigration reform advocates who had been colleagues. More on that in our conversation. Munoz recently published a book, More Than Ready, Be Strong and Be You, and Other Lessons for Women of Color on the Rise. Diversity is something she believes in as critical to progress. She joins Equal Time to talk about the challenges the country has long faced on the issue of immigration reform, how progress can be achieved, and why real diversity matters. Welcome to equal time, Cecilia Munoz. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I wanted to start off by really putting a contrast between the previous administration and the Biden administration. Uh, In less than two weeks, they've all but dismantled many of the Trump administration policies. I wanted to ask you, what do you think of some of their, or really all of their actions on immigration so far? All of this is an incredibly strong start. But I think it,
1: there's, there's so much more to do. Um, he's reinstated DACA, which is tremendously important. But at the same time, we know that DACA is under litigation and is really potentially in grave danger. So the, there's, there, it's not just that there's more for the Biden administration to do, it's that Congress also needs to step up and do its part here.
0: Well, um, you know, he's even looking at some of the asylum and uh, naturalization processes in the country. What do you think of his actions on that? Asylum is a really big challenge. And I think one of the, um, perhaps,
1: of of all of the very challenging things the the Biden administration has to do, addressing the situation at the border is potentially among the very most challenging because the Trump administration created such a mess. Um, So get, and because we're in a pandemic. So getting to a situation in which people who come to the United States seeking refuge can get an exp- can be treated with the humanity that they deserve and get an expeditious answer about whether they qualify for asylum is a, is a very tall order. And I am encouraged that the Biden administration is putting its shoulder to the wheel here because it's very badly needed.
0: Well, I want to uh, go on with that a little bit, considering that there is a real challenge with that. The fact that we do see so many now families rushing to the border uh, besides the backlog because they see there's a new administration and you even see you know the Texas judge pushing back and extending his block on their deportation uh, and moratorium of the administration their orders. what do you think of the pace of it is he is he moving uh, is, he, is he doing too much too fast for them to really deal with? Him?
1: in fairness to the Biden administration, the previous administration left a pretty big mess for them to clean up and it is going to take time. So not only are they not moving too fast, but they're sending signals that they need to do this deliberately. They need to do it in a way which keeps everybody safe where I mean, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and that the, you know, the tools that they have, and I say this as a former government official myself, you know, the tools that you have at the border to manage the kind of situation that we have now are, are not sufficient. They're just inadequate. Our border infrastructure, everything from our laws to our policies to our physical facilities is built for the situation we had 25 years ago, which is single adults coming from Mexico. And that's not what we have right now. What we have are families coming from Central America and we're not equipped. And it's going to take a minute before we are equipped to apply the law in a way which meets our values.
0: Yeah, well, you know, there will be some advocates who will be disappointed in that pace. And you did talk about your former time uh, with the Obama administration. So let's kind of talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, You know, President Obama was called by some of his critics, the deporter in chief. And during your time in the White House, you often had to defend, explain publicly a lot of those policies.
1: Yes, the, um, this is—it's it, an area of policy where there's a lot of emotion, and the actions of the Obama administration aren't terribly well understood. And I look—I understand the emotion, and, and I was an advocate for more than twenty years before I went into government, so I, I understand it pretty deeply. The so it is correct that the number of people removed in the Obama years was high. It is not correct that the majority of those people were folks who were hunted down in the interior of the United States. um, You know, who were long-term residents. In fact, the vast majority of the people who were removed were people were either recent arrivals or folks who had been um, convicted of serious crimes. the The innovation that the Obama administration made, which is really really important, is to have for the first time ever a set of priorities around how we were going to enforce our immigration laws. In other words, with 11 million undocumented people, the Obama administration was the first to say, our job is not to go after everybody and try to find as many of the 11 million as we can. Our job is to to prioritize where we're gonna use our enforcement resources and the priorities that were named. And and the, the work that actually happened was to remove, two big priorities, folks who had just come because it's inherently more humane to remove people who are removable before they put down roots in the country uh, and people who have been convicted of serious crimes. Now, it, it in fairness to the to the advocates who are angry, it took a while to formulate those priorities and it took even longer to, to implement them well. And I think that's an absolutely fair criticism. But the folks who basically say, Obama deported more people than President Trump and therefore he's worse. First of all, just if you step back and think about that on his face, it doesn't make sense. If you look at the two administrations and the motivations of the two administrations. Um, but the reality is that uh, there were more at the beginning in the Obama first term, there were more individuals coming from Mexico. And by the end of the Obama years and the Trump years, that's not who migrants were. Uh, migrants were families from Central America. And, uh, you know, I, I think we've all seen and are pretty well-versed
0: in the differences between the Obama administration's approach to that and the Trump administration. So you believe that President Obama's policies were, were, were pretty sound?
1: I, I, look, as an official in his administration, I think we used the pretty terrible tools that are available in an environment where the immigration laws have not been reformed for decades. Uh, I think the Obama administration used those tools in as thoughtful a way as we could. Um, I've yet to see anyone propose a set of enforcement priorities that they prefer to the Obama administration's priorities. Um, But the fact of the matter is, this is a system which is very badly broken. The tools available to the government are terrible.
0: Now, nearly 20 years ago, then-Mexican President Vicente Fox became the first foreign president to address the U.S. Congress And the speech was designed to lay the groundwork for then-President George W. Bush to overhaul the U.S. immigration laws. Then 9-11 happened. A few days later, the deal was scuttled. And since then, it seems as if anything to do with immigration is done via a presidential decree because, you know, the issue that policy can be overturned with the stroke of a pen and people's lives are at stake, well, as you use the uh, example of the Dreamers, people who know their status, don't know their status. Why is it so hard to get this country to come to some kind of agreement on immigration?
1: You know, this, it's it's such a good question. And we've been trying to pass this essentially the same iteration of the same immigration reform really ever since the, that uh, conversation between President Fox and President Bush. Um, that's a long time to be working on uh, a, a policy reform a long time for the country to live with a system which everybody agrees is broken the most frustrating thing about trying to get immigration policy done is that the country by and large doesn't disagree it's the it, it, our, our politics are not set up for success on immigration but even on something like the dream act where you get 80 85 90% of the country in support of protecting the dreamers democrats and republicans but it's been hard to get the Congress there. Like a vote on the Dream Act failed in 2010, um, uh, and because we had there were 11 Republicans in the Senate at the time who had supported and voted for the Dream Act previously, we didn't need all of them. But we only got three, and we lost that vote by five votes. And the the politics of immigration are broken, but the policy is largely agreed upon. Most of the country agrees that a reasonable pathway to citizenship for undocumented people should be implemented. Most of the country agrees we should be legalizing dreamers. Most of the country agrees on a a, a framework for something that's fair, that meets our values, where there are rules and people follow the rules. And and so the policy is not the problem here. The problem is the, the, the emotional politics, especially on the Republican side, Which will not allow anything that resembles any any kind of generosity to pass or to even come up for a vote. In 2013, when immigration reform passed the Senate with 68 votes, like nothing gets 68 votes anymore, Um, it's not that we didn't have 218 in the House for a similar reform. It's that the Speaker could not, felt he could not bring the bill up for a vote, the Republican Speaker, because his party would rebel not because he didn't have members of his caucus who would vote for the bill but because the members of his caucus who opposed it would set him on fire and that's the reason that we can't that we haven't been able to get an immigration reform through and we'll see if with the you know dynamics of the new congress uh, i believe the votes are there certainly in the house of representatives and then the you know question is the senate and what kind of rules does the senate operate under but it's this isn't a question of whether the country by and large, is willing to support an immigration reform. It's a, it's a question of whether our politics um, can sustain it.
0: Well, speaking of the politics, we saw the previous president, when he started his campaign, come down that escalator and talk about Mexicans uh, as immigrants as rapists. Uh, we saw him talk about the ethnicity of a judge. Uh, we saw him referring, heard him, to immigrants from Black and brown countries. Uh, and we he used an expletive to describe those countries. Um, and we used immigration as really a political, as you say, uh, you said it's political, a political cudgel as less a policy than more politics. Is it? Is it racism? Yes,
1: clearly. I, you know, I thank you for asking the question that way, because that's been true for a really long time. And. The, the, you know, presidency that we have just survived barely um, really put it in high relief. The organizations which carry the the restrictionist banner, the the anti-immigrant side of the immigration debate, every single one of them has roots, has connections to white supremacy. And they have been, I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the course of my career I've been doing this for 30 years that I've been asked to debate I've been, you know, quoted in articles opposite people who work for organizations with white supremacist ties. And I can't tell you how many times I've pointed out to journalists, you know, that person you're talking to, here's the memo written by the founder of his organization that talks about people with names like mine as being uneducable, not uneducated, but uneducable. Um, Right, here's the white supremacist ties of that organization. Why are you quoting them? Why are you lifting them up? Why are you pretending... That this is a think tank like any other think tank, uh, and the answer has been, well, you know, you got to have two sides and a, and, and a piece of journalism. Well, I, I am, you know, it shouldn't have taken um, the the um, overt racism that we've seen over the last four years to recognize racism when we saw it in this debate, but it did. Like we 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 are now having this conversation. Where you know, ten years ago, we couldn't have had this conversation, and it's about frickin time because, look, it is I am not saying that anybody who has concerns about immigration or wants there to be limits is a racist. I am saying that to, way too much of our debate is being driven by this sentiment that you know, people who are black and brown and have immigrant roots come from terrible places and maybe, are undeserving of being Americans. I have been fighting that kind of sentiment my whole career, and it's about time it came out in the open that this is indeed what we're fighting. But let's be honest, right? We there, there's we just had a president of the United States who made really clear that the only kind of immigrant he was he wanted was a white one, and he wasn't just speaking for himself.
0: We have work to do. I think our listeners, we love stories at equal time. So I'd like to understand a little bit about your story, a little bit more. If you could tell us more, I've read about your dreams as a young girl, little Cecilia, and your journey growing up in Michigan and you're you're a child of immigrants from Bolivia, I believe. So, and you've talked about and, and written about your life experiences and how they inspired you to do the work you do. So can you talk about your story?
1: Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I actually wrote a book which came out last year called More Than Ready,
0: which I'm gonna ask you about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's a it's it's a recounting of my story, but not just a recounting of my story. I also interviewed seven other women of color who I greatly admire as a way of recounting lessons that I've learned over the course of my career that might be useful to, to other people, particularly women, particularly women of color. And my Story really is, in some ways, it's classic immigrant story. Parents came from a very poor country. They found themselves in Detroit right in the 50s, right as the auto industry was really taking off. And my dad worked for Ford Motor Company for nearly 40 years. And Detroit's the city where their American dream became real. And I grew up with the sense that my job was to make sure it was real for everybody else. And I'm, you know, honored to... I've been able to do that work in the civil rights movement. I was at an organization that was then called the National Council of La Raza. It's now called Unidos US. I was there for 20 years. I was recruited into the Obama administration where I served for eight. Um, I, I never expected to see myself working in government. And I got my arm twisted pretty hard And uh, and, you know, learned a tremendous amount about myself. And about service um, through, through working for President Obama. I was honored to be on his senior team and honored to be one of the people that served all eight years. I was his domestic policy advisor for five of those years. Um, and I'm the first Latina ever to be in that role. Um, and I recount some of those challenges, including knowing that there were people around me in that White House who had doubts about whether I belonged there. Um, I learned a lot from that experience. And I now work at an uh, organization called New America which is really about helping the country realize its promise. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm honored to be a part of that. I work particularly on something called public interest technology, which is um, I learned from my experience in government that we don't deploy all of the tools and skills that we have to the task of making sure government delivers what it's supposed to deliver to people. And And I'm part of a movement that's intent on fixing that. So I'm, you know, I'm lucky. Um, but my, the really the theme for me of what my work has been about has been this notion that, you know, my parents were lucky to end up in Detroit and it shouldn't just be about luck, right? We should be about making sure that the kind of, um, hard work and dedication that, that made it possible for them to raise four successful children, um, that that opportunity is available to everybody. We have a long way to go for that to be true.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I wonder about, I remember when I was very young and before I could understand it, I was so inspired by, I'm the youngest of five, my three elder siblings, eldest, uh, involved in the civil rights movement and they would plan and I would kind of listen and half understand. I want to go back to you as an eight, nine-year-old, Cecilia. Is there something that really clicked in your head where you said this is, what I need to be doing, an experience or something you observe?
1: You know, it actually happened in high school.
0: Uh,
1: I um, had a friend, a high school friend, who got to know my family really quite well. And when I was in high school, there was a lot of conflict in Central America. And uh, and, uh, that was the subject of dinner table conversation in my house. We always talked politics and world affairs and science at the dinner table. and. You know, we were very distressed by the United States support for very violent regimes in Central America, and my friend said to me, "You know, if we were to ever get in a war uh, over these issues in a place like in places like Central America, I could see the logic of internment camps for people like your family." Um, and that opened my eyes to to really understanding that at some Level, you're always an other, and even people who know you, even people who you think know you, who you think love you, who know your family, can still understand you as an other in a really deep and terrible way. And I think that's the moment when I kind of joined the civil rights movement. Um, that's when I really understood that um, that the the work to be understood as Americans is very deep work, and it's never over and it's not even over when people get to know you. Like it never occurred to me that, I was born in Detroit, it never occurred to me that my family and I were anything but Americans with this Bolivian heritage. But that was when I understood that there were, for some people, we would never be. They would never understand us as having the same rights as they do. And so that was was when it started for me.
0: You talked about your book and I wanna talk a little bit more because it was more than ready, be strong and be you. And other lessons for women of color on the rise. Now, as a Latina, you've been the only in so many rooms, as you've mentioned, and felt that, uh, and you've been the first. Is that what inspired you to write that book?
1: Yeah, you know, I did not walk out of the White House thinking I was going to write a book, as many people do. Um, I. Put my head down, found another job, and found another way to try to make a difference. And but women, there were women in my life who pushed me and said, "Look, I I think you might have something to say, and you should give that some thought." And at first, I totally poo pooed the idea, and I, I, you know, I did what women do and what women of color especially do. Ah, you know, who am I to put my thoughts down on paper and like who would could would possibly care what I might have to say? And and I got pushed. And, it, for, and, and then I realized, I not only do I have something to say, but I actually say it all the time. I, you know, I speak around the country, at least when we can travel, I speak around the country frequently to groups of people early in their careers, college students, in classes of interns, young people. And I tell them stories from, uh, from you know, across my career stories that have taught me things that I think might be useful to them. And invariably somebody comes up afterwards and a hundred percent of the time she's a woman. And most of the time she's a woman of color. And she'll say something like that thing you said about the time when you were the only one, like you in the room and you had to screw up the courage to say the thing you needed to say, you know, she'll say, that's, that's me all the time. And I kind of feel like the only one. And that's, so when I gave myself permission to realize that I do have something to say. Um, I then knew what was going to be in all 10 chapters of the book. Um, and this is a thing that we do as women and particularly women of color, keep our head down and we do our stuff. But we hesitate to um, lift our voice and to, um, to believe that it might have value to others. And at some level, of course it has value to others. Um, so that's that's what inspired me to write the book. Really, those women who came up to me after those talks to say, "Thank God you said that thing about being afraid,"
0: because I'm afraid like that all the time, and I just I thought I was the only one. Is this the part where I say Amen, sister? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, now you know we do have the first female vice president. Now she is a black woman. She is a South Asian woman, and uh, she, as relevant to this conversation, she is the daughter of immigrants. Yeah. And we've seen the influence of female activists who pretty much have been on the front lines making a difference, particularly in the last election. We saw all these incredible women in Georgia, uh, all over the country who have been on the ground in Arizona. So what do you think of that? What are some of the lessons that you see reflected from your book to their actions? and? Have women now making history learned those lessons? What what do you what do you, what's what are you thinking when you see what's going on now? Well,
1: I, I feel a lot of emotion. It was so it, it's been so moving to watch the rise of Vice President Harris. And it gives me such joy to say her name that way. Um and it really is true that it makes a difference for women just, just to see her in this role. For men for that matter, to see her in this role. But I also think we're learning a lot about how far we need to go and how hard it is. That she was attacked for being ambitious, for example. Nobody attacks a male politician for being ambitious ever. Um, You know, we see the way the double standards apply, um, and we see how she's having to navigate them as a as a first and an only right, the first woman of color and the first woman in that role, first woman of color in that role, and all of the other things that she is. Um, I think she is. You know, managing that spotlight and that role with some real grace and some real integrity, um, but you know, the, you you um, you see what a land, what a, a series of landmines it, it is, and that says to me, boy, we still have a lot, a lot more to do. You know, I recognize those landmines as I watch, right? This notion that somehow being ambition in a woman is is a a quality to be derided. Um, that's, you know, suggests that not only do we have to support her and lift her up and point out the double standards that apply to her as she carries out this role, but we, you know, we need to keep breaking the doors open so that, as she said, you know, she may be the first, but she doesn't intend to be the last. That's not just on her, that's on all of us. And that means we have to be deliberate about opening doors for each other, watching each other's backs. Um, We had a Culture in the White House in the Obama years, which was really led not by the president himself, but also by Valerie Jarrett. She set a tone really early. We're not competing with each other here. We're not, you know, we're we're going to have each other's backs, and we're going to provide each other feedback, help each other up our game. You know, it's not just about cheerleading; it's about making sure that we're ready to face any challenge and and supporting each other in doing that. Uh, I benefited so much from that and from from her leadership. Um. And our job is to pay that forward.
0: Um, I always ask my guests uh, on Equal Time, or even when I do interviews, because people always have a mission and a passion. I always say, what question have I not asked you that you wish I had? Because you really have something to say on it.
1: Oh, goodness. Um, I also have an immigrant family. So I married a a man from India uh, and my mixed-race daughters. and maybe the, the you know, the question is, what am I, what am I hoping for my girls? They're adults now. Um, the world that they're coming up in is different uh, than the one I came up in, and thank God for that. Um, you know, they they will face challenges, but hopefully they will be different challenges than we faced. But I um they might I what I hope for it is what I'm beginning to see with my daughters. They're in their 20s. They are not afraid of um, to speak out. They are not afraid to um, kind of be out there in a way that I was, I did not feel was possible for me in my professional life when I was in my 20s. So all of the accommodations that I made that I describe in my book, I talk about, you know, I'm short, I talk, talk about wearing heels and Directing a particular way to convey authority that I, I that my short self did not convey when I walked into a room. They don't even relate to any of that, um, right? They, in their view, their job is to be who they are, and uh, and they, you know, they they don't feel they should need props like that to, in order to convey authority. And I hope they're right there's a part of me, it's a generational thing, right? There's a part of me that doubts that the world has changed that much, but I admire their, their courage and their um, ability to be genuinely, authentically who they are and not be afraid of that. And I hope that that's an indication of the ways in which the world is changing.
0: Thank you, Cecilia Munoz, for being a guest on Equal Time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a real joy.
0: So, what's keeping you up at night? Yes, I heard from several listeners this week. One can't shake some of those images of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob, along with a noose and Confederate flags, for crosses, and folks stopping to pray after breaking windows and yelling "Hang Mike Pence." How faith is used by some as a cover for hate is her nightmare. Another listener wonders how Americans will ever manage to come together when too many no longer share a common reality. I can't say my own nighttime thoughts will lighten the mood. Not when a nine-year-old black girl is handcuffed and pepper sprayed by police in Rochester. She cried out for her father as any child would. You're acting like a child, the officer said. I am a child, she replied. But all that officer saw was someone who deserved not understanding, but a face full of chemicals. Joe Biden offers his own racial equity efforts in a country that has a long way to go toward justice. Yet some critics still say, slow down and call him divisive. It's not just a nine-year-old girl that's in distress. It's what's keeping me up at night and what I'm writing about in my column this week in Roll Call. Check it out. And let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.